Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ProServe Public Relations, serving up law, finance, and professional service public relations campaigns. Production for ProServe PR Talk Radio shows, namely the Law Talk Radio and Money Talk Radio shows, is funded by our event advertising. We work hard to bring you new and pragmatic content on Law Talk Radio on Tuesdays and Money Talk Radio on Thursday afternoons, both shows airing at 4 o'clock Central. Today we do have a special broadcast time with our guest Donna Adler. This is part three in a series titled Civil Liberties Examined Post-9-11 with Ms. Donna Adler. Chicago civil rights attorney Donna Adler walks us through the status of civil liberties in the U.S. uh, following the September 11th attacks. Our third show of the 10-part series will continue to examine. uh, We looked at some of the events before and we'll continue to talk about some events and uh, some some of the breakdowns in the systems that occurred um, that morning that led up to the 9-11 Commission report findings and some of the laws and uh, things that have been enacted since then. By way of introduction, having practiced law for over 25 years, Chicago attorney Donna Adler has built her career incorporating education and service to local and professional business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several practice areas, including without limitation, general and civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense and administrative law, uh, also immigration. Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County in Oakbrook Terrace, Illinois. Her website, and I will get this right this time, it's www.donnamadlerlawllc.com. So again, Donna no. M. You, you just want to read it? <laughs> it's Donna M. Adler, Adler Law, LLC.com. Okay, Donna M. Adler, AdlerLawLLC.com. I'm sorry, I keep getting that wrong. Um, we do want to welcome our callers this afternoon, uh, this morning rather. Uh, your counterpoints are always welcome as well as your thoughts. 917-889-9732. Press option 1 for the caller queue. Again, that's 917-889-9732. Option 1 for the caller queue. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program. The advice shared on the show does not constitute professional advice. Communications with attorneys and finance professionals on the show does not give rise to professional relationships. ProServe PR Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers uh, can remain confidential and broadcast rights are reserved by ProServe Public Relations. We have a couple events to tell you about this morning before we get underway. Uh, Again, in our change of format, as we've uh, announced recently, we are focused on events and uh, during our broadcast and our breaks. Um, two upcoming events coming from Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Their Off the Pages series has two events. Uh, if you're getting your uh, pencil down for your calendar, the first event is September 20th. The next is October 18th. The September 20th event is entitled Taking Care of Business, and the three panels of interest are, number one, how to grow your book of business in a challenging economy, number two, building a relationship with your in-house lawyers, and three, motivating and keeping young talent. Now, the panelists presenting at this event are top attorneys and executives with valuable insight. The event will be held from 7.30 to 11 
a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. For early bird registration and more information, you can contact Ms. Olivia Clark at Law Bulletin Publishing for more information. Her telephone number is area code 312-644-4033. You can also contact her by email at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at lbpc.com. MCLE credit is pending for this event and sponsorship opportunities may still be available. Now, the second additional uh, off-the-pages series by Chicago Lawyer Magazine on the October 18th date is titled Taking Diversity Seriously. Two following panels will be presented. Number one, being a woman in this legal industry and navigating the challenging waters. Number two, a detailed look at local diversity statistics. In addition, Chicago Lawyer presents keynote speaker Aaron Reeves of NextGens. Reeves is a Chicago Lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present his status report on diversity. This event also takes place from 7.30 to 11 at the University Club in Chicago. Again, Olivia Clark for more information, 312-644-4033. Now, by way of subject matter for today's show, this is episode three in our series of at least ten shows devoted to the impact on civil liberties of laws passed since 9 2011-2001 to enhance national security. Attorney Donna M. Adler leads us through the chronology from the events of the day on September 11th and the 9-11 Commission report through several major pieces of legislation, such as the Homeland Security Act, the Patriot Act, Patriot II, Military Commissions Act, and a number of laws directed at enhancing the national capacity to fight terrorism. Today we address uh, some of the events as well as some of the breakdowns in domestic and foreign systems. Again, in our first two shows, you can also find those in our archives. We went through a lot of the events and times of the, the, the horrible morning that we celebrate now, uh, 10 years later, uh, many uh, next week is devoted mainly from a lot of folks to remembering and honoring those who lost their lives during that terrible day. So, Don, I want to welcome you back to the show, this special uh, broadcast this morning. How are you today? Darren had to call back in. I don't know what oh, happened. I got you. I got you. You're there. Hi, Donna. How are you? Hopefully that won't happen. I'm fine. All right. Um, so, episode three here, we went through so many of the uh, events and times of that of that tragic morning, and um, and we started to talk about some of the breakdowns in the systems, and can look a little closer at some of that this morning. Um, why don't you uh, continue our discussion and set us a roadmap? Okay, well, what we're going to do today, I think, is talk a little bit about um, some breakdowns, perhaps, or uh, in in the in the immigration system, in the visa um, in the visa system, and I'm just going to use um, s- some aspects of um, the 9/11 involvement by various people as illustrations of the kinds of things that um, are red flags about what went wrong on on, on 9/11, how that how that became possible. Let's talk first about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the principal architect of the 9-11 attacks. Um, he was not, from the start, okay, involved with al-Qaeda, but became involved with them. I think he was a great admirer of, of bin Laden. But he he was a Kuwaiti, and his ethnic lineage was um, from Iran and Pakistan. It was from the Balu-Kristan um, region of, of Pakistan. I hope I'm saying that correctly. But he left Kuwait as a young man to enroll um, at a small Baptist college in the United States in Murfreesboro, North Carolina. He studied agriculture. He's a very smart guy, okay, intelligent. Um, 
in Greensboro, North Carolina. He earned a mechanical engineering degree in 1986 there. He apparently was not on the radar screen in the United States for any extremist activities. Um, Quiet, well-balanced, well-mannered person, okay, by appearance. He plunged into anti-Soviet Afghan jihad after he graduated from college. He visited Pakistan in 1987. Um, His brother introduced him to the head of the Islamic Union Party there. Abdul Rasul Saif Muhammad became his mentor and provided him with military training. He worked for an electronics firm that um, catered to the needs of Afghan groups where he learned about drills and he learned to excavate caves in Afghanistan. So he was using his degree. He ran a non-governmental organization. He was involved in um, operations in, in Bosnia that um, became that were terrorist operations. He was a project manager in Qatar, in Qatar with the Qatari Ministry of Electricity and Water, so he had a government position there. Uh, he did a lot of international travel while in that position, most of it in service of terrorist activity. He was involved in the first World Trade Center bombing um, in 1993 as the financier of um, Ramzi Youssef. He... Um, was inspired by Yusuf to become involved in planning attacks against the U.S. Now, here we have someone to whom um, our system gave a student visa to come to the United States, get a mechanical engineering degree, and then he leaves and uses it against us. His animus toward the U.S. uh, was not from his experience as a student, but because he disagreed with U.S. foreign policy toward Israel um, by report of the 9-11 Commission report. They um, were working with the folks who interviewed um, who interviewed him to ascertain some of these facts. He planned um, the Manila. He planned a Manila air plot um, with Yousef. It was a, it was an intended bombing of 12 U.S. commercial jumbo flights over the Pacific, but that never ended up happening. But he was involved in planning that. He and Yusuf acquired chemicals and other materials necessary to construct bombs. Um, they also um, targeted flights, case flights. Going between um, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, going from Hong Kong and Seoul that would um, that would go to the U.S. So they were looking at all that. He helped Yusuf develop plans to assassinate President Clinton. Um, the air plot unraveled after Philippine authorities discovered um, Yusuf's bomb-making operation in Manila. By 1996, U.S. authorities were chasing him, um, so he went to Afghanistan. They knew he was a bad actor. He met Bin Laden in 1996 in Afghanistan. Um, and proposed the 9-11 um, operation, so he was the mastermind of it. Bin Laden invited him to join al-Qaeda at that time, but he declined and uh, preferred to remain independent. He relocated to Karachi in 1997. Um, the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar al-Salam, um, in which Bin Laden were involved, apparently convinced him that Bin Laden was committed to attacking the U.S., and bin Laden gave him the green light for the 9-11 operations in late 1998 or 1999. And he began to, um, at that point, recruit people who would become um, suicide bombers in the United States. And he began to train them based on his knowledge of uh, U.S. culture and um, his facility with um, how things worked here to um, help get them Help get them acclimated in the United States when they were uh, when they arrived. Of course, getting getting visas um, was an issue for some of them, but surprisingly, um, a number of them got visas rather rather easily. Now, reading this story, especially um, after some of the operatives got in the United States, you you understand what was happening at the gate. Where are the gatekeepers? And I think that. Um, 
we have to ask questions at a, at a few points. Um, anybody can read the 9-11 report, but the two issues that, that, that um, jump out for me are what's going on in the student visa process and what's going on in, the, um, in, in our other visa, non-immigrant visa processes. How does screening work? How did screening work then? And what would need to be done to improve things so that we could um, safeguard ourselves against the phenomenon of someone like um, Khalif Sheikh Mohammed coming to the United States, taking advantage of the educational system here, then leaving with his mechanical engineering degree and turning it against turning it against the country. Now it seems to me that this is not this is not a scenario we want to have occur. And I'm sure no one <laughs> intended to have that occur. And as you look back in hindsight, you ask yourself, well is there any way I mean is there any way to to get a feel for who is going to um who is going to be um likely or if not likely who is going to be suspect for this kind of this kind of behavior that's not that's that's obviously not easy to um easy to do but when one um when one when one thinks about visa applications one would hope and this was not going on so much at the time i think that one would ask about all the connections someone had i think we need to go go to that depth uh, with some with some student visas coming from some areas of the world, we need to be asking much more probing questions about who's connected with whom, who's in what family, um, who's involved in what, so that we can more intelligently decide whether we as a nation want to take a risk on letting some people come in who want to study at our universities and institutions of higher education. That's just um, one take that, that I have on this, that there um, is some kind of breakdown or was at the time in the, in the student visa process. Now we have systems in place to keep track of people who enroll in, um, who enroll in our universities. We can discuss that later down the line. But um, then, okay, if you came in as a student, um, the F visa is the usual student visa. I don't uh, know whether that, that is probably what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had when he came in to um, study in North Carolina. But um, what kinds of questions are being asked in the, in the visa process? Now, when um, operatives came into the United States, actual operatives for the um, 9-11 attacks, um, Hamzi and Mintar, for example, um, hailed from Saudi Arabia, I believe, and they came in on January 15th, um, 2000, in Los Angeles. Let me just make sure that I've got that, um, that I have that date right. Yes, January 2000, um, they entered the United States um, in Los Angeles. Well, they got in rather easily without raising uh, without raising many questions. And one wonders again what kinds of questions are um, are being asked after they got here. They'd been prepped ahead of time by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He was there. He was their teacher about Western culture, Western habits. He taught them how to how to read phone books. They came to the United States to learn English and to um, learn how to fly planes. So that those were their two purposes and that was preparatory preparatory of course to what happened on on 9/11 and those were their two objectives. So they come in Los Angeles and they um they pose as Saudi students and they seek assistance okay at local mosques. So can the people at those local mosques would not have known what um they were about um necessarily. Okay, so we don't there's a lot that a lot of unknowns there, but they sought friends at local mosques as um one would expect persons of their um 
their background to do. I mean, if if you were going to a foreign country and you were a deeply religious person and you were going to stay there for a while, you would um, you would you would be expected, or if you posed that way, you'd expected to be uh, you would expect to um, perhaps hang out with those of your own. Uh, your own faith, or that's where you'd go to get help to get acclimated to the new country. Well, I'm not going to comment on the religious, um, deep religious convictions of Ponzi and Mindar. I have my doubts about that, but um, having come from their background, they would, it would seem, um, quite naturally go to these local mosques for help. So what I'm trying to say is that you can't um, um, place a fault or blame um, necessarily on, on the mosques because they helped these people acclimate to life in the United States. Um, none of us know each other's stories all the time, and um, I'm sure that, that the folks helping them, uh, many of the folks helping them would not have known what they were up to. They they did get help from the King Fahd Mosque in Los Angeles, which had raised some um, some suspicion, I think, among U.S. authorities and the Islamic Center at San Diego as they tried to um, as they tried to acclimate to life here. And they did eventually learn enough um, English to get around, and they certainly took flight lessons here. What I want to focus on is um, is the fact that they got here, and yeah, they were able to move around here. And they were able not only to move around here, but they were able to take flight lessons here with very few questions being raised about their motives for wanting to take flight lessons, why it was that these Near Eastern men wanted to do this. And um, I just I just have a lot of questions about the, the lack of questioning right. among people who um, would take folks into school or um, grant them visas. Donna, we have to pause for a quick break, but the first thing that uh, keeps I keep going through my head as you're talking about the different people who uh, assisted these gentlemen, and enough, there are a, there are red flags, but then at the same time there are not red flags because it almost seems like unless you're at a crystal ball, how do you pretextually prevent or stop? There's so many potential problems here um you know with a with a country established as the way ours is i don't right. know how to cure some of these problems but we're going to have we'll be right back we're going to pause for a quick couple messages the first event message we want to tell you about the collaborative law institute of illinois west suburban practice group has an upcoming event on september 22nd if you're in dupage county on that day september 22nd you should attend collaborative law institute of illinois west suburban practice groups their annual open house is going to be at carlucci's restaurant in lombard at the intersection of I-355 and Butterfield Road. From 5 to 7, you can meet the attorneys, financial, and mental health professionals who team up to provide collaborative divorce solutions. Guests will include professionals who might be interested in becoming collaborative fellows, as well as family law judges from the DuPage Family Law Division, as well as affiliate professionals who are utilized in the collaborative process. For your invitation, please email Ms. Connie Walsh at Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, at yourfinancialdivorce.com. Again, that's Connie at yourfinancialdivorce.com. Also, we want to let you know that ProServe Public Relations does serve up nationwide law, finance, and professional services to and public relations. We want to let you know that we work tirelessly in promoting our clients' speaking engagements, networking events, educational series, and webinars. So if you have an event you want to promote, we'll advertise your event here on Law Talk Radio and help spread the word. Give us a call at 312-505-2604 to see how we can help attract more people to your event. Again, the telephone number is 312-505-2604. Again, if you have a suggestion for a Law Talk Radio broadcast, please let us know. You can drop a note on our Facebook page. Simply search on the search bar for Law Talk Radio. Now, getting back to our program with Donna Adler. Donna, uh, you know, it's 
so difficult to think about ways to stop people. You know, you talked about the gentleman is staying at the mosque. I mean, none of these things are inherently um, suspicious. I suppose it's just a chain and pattern of events. But administratively, how would you track and find – I just – I can't – you know, I know we're trying to propose some solutions here, um, you know, and try to find out where the systems are, are failing. But with an open and free, you know, democratic country with an open immigration policy, so to speak, I, I really don't. I'm trying to, you know, brainstorm ideas, but um, it's a really troublesome thing. Let's get back to uh, your you were talking about the flight school. Right. Okay. I, I think your question is an important one, and I, I think that, that it is a very difficult question to answer. I'm simply going to, again, as we as we go through this program together, we're looking at all this as sort of armchair citizens thinking together um, and attempting to come not only to an understanding but also have a dialogue about um, what solutions, because remember what our focus is. We're going to take a look at the laws that have been passed since 9-11 eventually down the line and see whether, um, in light of where the breakdowns were, they make sense in um, addressing um, where those breakdowns were, whether they overreach whether they're, um, or whether they're, they underreach, okay, for that matter, and um, what might make the most sense with respect to um, helping protect ourselves against letting people in that don't have any business being here. Hindsight is great sight, as you pointed out, and there's no way in advance that you can know um, what someone's going to do. The vast majority of our foreign students coming to this country are, are very good people, and they they um, add richness to our classrooms, and uh, they add richness to our understanding of other cultures, and it's a pleasure to have them here. Some, however, are um, are not such a pleasure as um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed turned out not to be, and it is those it is those few that we have to think um, affect think about effectively um, in terms of how how do you block those folks from coming in. I did want to say um, one thing, so just for the sake of accuracy, um, when Mindara and um, Hamzi came in in California, eventually, okay, they did have some of them had um, some of these. A terrorist operative did have more trouble than others learning English and learning how to fly. And Mindar eventually bailed out because he um, found it difficult to learn the language and he was having trouble with the flight school. But then Hani Hanjur came in, arrived in San Diego on December 8th of 2000. Um, he had arrived in um, San Diego, so he came relatively, um, he came much later in the game, or at least um, 10, 11 months later in the game. And he hooked up with Hamzi at that point and um, and then went on to um, attempt to learn English and to um, attempt to learn to fly. There was a Hamburg contingent of pilots who arrived from um, into the United States, too. They had studied in Germany and also were familiar with Western culture. But to get back to um, just one more aspect of the problem in terms of Western-educated people then turning educations against the U.S., um, Hambali was one of... Al-Qaeda's um, field commander, so to speak. And the um, right-hand man of bin Laden, Mohammed Atef, had turned to him when Al-Qaeda needed a scientist to take over his biological weapons program. Now, Hambali himself was not U.S. educated, but he introduced a U.S. educated um, member of um, 
of the um, of the terrorist group, his name was Yazid Sufat, to Amin al-Zawahiri in Kandahar for the purpose of um, taking on the biological weapons program. So again, another example of someone educated here who later goes on to use that education in service of nefarious purposes. Now, again, how do you predict a thing like that? Well, you're not going to be able to predict it, okay, in advance with any certitude, and we don't want to become, you know, a country that um, just um, puts a flag of suspicion on people coming from a certain area of the world. But I think that we need to ask much more incisive questions um, on our visa applications for people coming in. And we may have to select certain areas of the world as more problematic than others that way and ask more careful questions. Uh, but I think that, that we do need to have we do need to be more intelligent in our questioning. Again, you can't ever predict. But remember nobody has a right to be in the United States, come from outside, who's not a U.S. citizen or who hasn't been granted U.S. residency or some other um, way to stay here. You don't have a right, if you're not a U.S. citizen, to be here and remain here, okay, forever. So it's not as though... um, it's not as though we have to feel bad about leaving some people out of the game, okay? not No one's entitled to get a visa to come into the United States of any kind. You're not entitled to this. This is something for which you apply, and it's a privilege to get it. From that standpoint, I think we need to look at, at the visa process. We don't want to become... Um, overweening and overbearing, it makes it more difficult for us to get into other countries. So we want to have a good rapport with with other nations. But when you have a a certain area of the world that's turbulent, problematic, riddled with problems, you need to ask, I think, incisive questions of folks coming in. And what are the kinds of questions you need to ask? Not the kinds of questions. And and believe me, the I-485 is not the form used, okay, for for B visa purposes or for F student visa purposes. But I, I pick on it because it's my favorite example. Of an obtuse, of an obtuse form. Okay, you need to do better than, um, as I've said in other shows, than um, did you come to the United States to engage in terrorist activities? You just need to do better than questions that have that kind of flavor to them. So, what would what would I look at if I were um, helping to design, okay, a policy for what you would ask um, people, how you would interview people coming to the United States? I would, I think, um, ask detailed questions about where the person grew up. You know, what schools did the person attend? Where was the person educated? Where has the person worked? Who belongs to this person's family? Okay, who are the family connections? Um, what other passports has the person hold, held? Because many folks... Um, um, would have duplicate passports. I mean, there were whole document um, manufacturing operations and fraudulent document operations working in this 9-11 attack. I mean, the um, plotters of Al-Qaeda were very sophisticated about how you you created different kinds. I mean, the plotters of 9-11 were very sophisticated about how you uh, manufacture false documents, how you abandon an old passport that might be suspect if you had a Yemeni passport, how not to use that and how to get a passport in another country um, so that so that you wouldn't be suspect if you were applying for a visa coming into the U.S. So you had that kind of sophistication on um, on the other end. And given the fact that we know that kind of sophistication existed, um, what kinds of questions do you ask? I think very detailed personal questions of everyone coming from that area of the world, um, maybe from the Near East right now, parts of Africa, et cetera. Who is your family? 
Okay, who are your who are your immediate connections? And as I said, it's a privilege to come here. I think that it is a privilege to come here, and I think that um, we have to value our own safety here. And as much as you don't want to to act with with prejudice or discrimination against anyone, it's not discrimination to take effects to take actions to protect yourself, to protect the country against harm. So I would ask detailed questions like that. And my security check, okay, would be not only on the person, him or herself, but also on those family connections. If there were people on a terrorist watch list, okay, in that person's family, um, if I were watching at the gate, I would not let that person in. Why? Not because that person, him or herself, is a, is a bad individual, but because um, can we take the risk? that someone's going to turn to that kind of activity. There's a risk factor there. And because there's uncertainty and lack of knowledge, is that a risk you want to take? There are some folks who would answer that question much differently than I would, but that would be my starting point as I began to have a dialogue with um, my fellow citizens about how we might protect ourselves against um, what happened um, 9-11. Okay, the chief uh, plotter, okay, the mastermind, was a U.S.-educated person. And he knew U.S. culture, and I'm not, he's one bad actor, one bad apple. Um, most of our foreign students are, are, are excellent people. Um, we, they are a treasure, as I've said. So, but we have to, we have to figure out how do we find the bad apple in the barrel and keep that person, keep that person out. One thing that, Don, I'd like to key in on that you talked about, if, if by guilt by association, I mean, we're essentially, people I think would react to the suggestion that we're talking about profiling here, but, you know, I don't see another way around it. And again, your your point is well taken that there is no fun, there is no right to be here if you're not a U.S. citizen, and there's no right to entry on a student visa. So that if your family, if the family member is on a watch list, you know, what better way do we have you know, they don't have a right, I guess, not to be uh, scrutinized under that level. So there is an element of fairness from a humanity perspective, but again, a safety and concern for our country perspective, I think, is sort of where we have to draw the, the value and judgment calls and overriding uh, issue. Well, I think our, our government has a has a hefty job on its hands. I wouldn't I wouldn't call profiling because it's a privilege to come in and. Um, it's not that you're you're um, you're 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 looking at certain areas of the world. You have to look at what the global dynamic is. Where is there conflict? Where is there a lot of terrorist activity going on? Okay, where are the hotbeds of this? If you're not taking a look at that and you're not scrutinizing folks coming from those areas to the United States, um, you're you're not being very prudent. Um, you're being, I think, um, unintelligent in your assessment of risks that we have to protect ourselves. Uh, against bad actors coming in. Not be paranoid, but um, I think that it makes sense and it doesn't matter. Okay, perhaps at some point there won't be conflict in in certain areas of the world that there's conflict in now, such as the Near East, but that something else will become a hotbed. If you're if you're not looking at those hotbeds with great care and you're just letting people in um, somewhat indiscriminately, uh, you're not being very responsible about the protection of your own citizenry. And that is the first and foremost um, responsibility you have, um, I think, in uh, on the immigration side of this. Okay, to the extent that immigration is related, immigration and Im- immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas are related to national security. Um, that's certainly an aspect of um, of their responsibility that they have to take 
very seriously. Uh, the consulates in the State Department, um, you know, as well, have to ask, uh, I think, much more careful questions than um, they were asking then, and perhaps um, sometimes even now. We have a great, you know, open country. It's a free system. No one wants to see that disappear. In my opinion, as as um, you will find out as we go on with the series, when we examine particular laws, some of these laws have gone um, way overboard. Um, in the equation of national security balanced against civil liberties, um, too much in in the direction of of paranoia and not enough in the, in the direction of balance. What we want is balance and intelligence, sort of a middle road, and that's going to take an intelligent dialogue among all of us. So I said my starting point would be that we need to um, exercise much greater scrutiny of people coming in from from areas of the world that are problematic. And it's not a right to be here. No one has a right. It's a privilege to be here. So it's not a matter of, of labeling um, applicants whose, whose visa applications are turned down as bad people. It's more, um, I'm sorry, okay, you yourself um, seem, to be, seem to be kosher and we value that, okay? Um, we, value, um, we value your apparent individual integrity. This has nothing personal to do with you, but you have family connections that um, that we're uncomfortable with, and we as a nation cannot take the risk to allow you to come in. I don't think that that is an unreasonable starting point. I don't think that it is a paranoid starting point. I think that it is a prudent starting point. It's what I would want my government to be doing. Now, my mind could be changed by um, um, by challenges to that position and dialogue about it in terms of the implications and ramifications. We can't just jump the gun. We have to talk about these things with, with each other and determine um, what would be fair and and just everyone concerned. It also serves our best interests in the United States to attract talented people from mm-hmm. other areas of the world to come here and study. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons we have foreign students and we educate foreign students is so that they will have an experience of life here and they will take pleasant memories back with them. And that builds good relations with, um, um, with, with um, people in other countries. And from some of these problematic areas of the world, see, it's always a two-edged sword. If you bring people from those areas here who are intelligent and have good experiences here, it builds better rapport um, on the other side. That's the hope. So there is there is a great, very great deal to be to be balanced in determining um, what kinds of measures we should be taking in admitting people to be students in the United States. Okay, and then other kinds of visas, visitors to the United States, um, who are we granting um, permanent resident status to in the United States? Um, so I'm not suggesting that we become paranoid. I'm trying to brainstorm with you about about how to be careful. Right, right. We're going to pause for a quick uh, event message from the American Bar Association and then come back to our uh, discussion and try to uh, point point out and uh, identify some, some ways, I guess, that we can uh, cure some of these problems or at least try to approach some solutions. And uh, from the ABA, we want to tell you about this is from the uh, Law Practice Management section. ABA uh, presents with ALI ABA, ABA is the co-sponsor, Law Practice Management sections. The the, the teleseminar is called Drafting and Implementing Ethical Law Firm Technology Policies. Technology policies, sorry, 
Uh, with the onslaught of new technologies in law practice, including the dizzying array of smart devices and social networking opportunities, responsible technology management is an imperative for all firms. The faculty presenting this interactive seminar include Michael Downey of Armstrong Teasdale in St. Louis, Marcus Harris of Marcus Stephen Harris in Chicago, and Brent Kidwell of Jenner and Block in Chicago. Mark your calendar for this live telephone seminar taking place on Tuesday, September 20th from noon to 1.30 Central. You can find this event online by visiting www.ali-aba.org and by searching in Google for this event named, again, Drafting and Implementing Ethical Law Firm Technology Policies. We want to remind our listeners out there also to share our broadcast links in their social networks. Again, many people do find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, and we thank all of you for your support in sharing our programming. Now back to our discussion with Donna Adler. We're talking about um, some of the problems with the student visa process, the visitor visa process, in trying to identify some potential solutions so that we don't have bad actors coming into the country as easily as um, you know, Kelly from Sheikh Mohammed did uh, in being educated and taking flight lessons at flight school and everything else that led up to an American educated uh, foreign nationalist coming, you know, committing the horrible acts of September 11th. Um, let's continue, Donna. What other thoughts do you have? Well, I just want to underscore um, the necessity of taking a serious look at. Um, the, series, the student visa process as, as it existed um, prior to uh, prior to September 11, to, uh, 2001. Let's take a look at Hani Hanjur a little bit. He had first come to the United States in uh, 1991, um, and he studied at uh, the Center for English as a Second Language at the University of Arizona. And he was um, apparently a devout Muslim. And he had gone to um, Afghanistan for the first time in the late 1980s as a teenager to participate in the jihad. Um, and he worked for a relief agency there because the Soviets had already withdrawn, so he couldn't participate in jihad activity at that time. Okay, But he comes to the United States in 1991 to study at the Center for English, and in the late 1980s he had gone to Afghanistan. Um, I wonder, was a pattern of travels, okay, prior to his entry to the United States um looked at. Usually, uh, if someone's got a passport stamped, um, all that stuff is asked for, and one can tell where someone's someone's been. Now, I have no idea what Hani Hanjur's passport may have indicated, but I would think that if I had been someone interviewing him for an, for for a student visa coming to the United States in 1991, I would I would have had I had the the benefit of hindsight, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. I would have I would have asked, but I think that some of these things make up sense to ask anyway. Okay, well, where else have you been? Where have you grown up? What have you done with your time? Um, what form do your religious beliefs take? Um, these may seem to be invasive questions, but we'll never get to um, we'll never get to a real picture of who someone is without some of these questions coming from um, some problematic areas of the world. Well, he he studied, as I said, in 1991, and he returned to the United States in 1996 to pursue flight training after he'd been rejected by a Saudi flight school. Um, he'd come from Saudi Arabia first in 1991. Well, he was rejected by a Saudi flight school, and then he checked out 
uh, off-white schools in Florida, in California, in Arizona, and he briefly started a couple of them. He went he back to Saudi Arabia. Well, he comes back and forth, okay, returns to Florida, then goes with two friends to Arizona and began his flight training there. Now, the University of Arizona seems to have been a place that um, he met a number of people that he became um, – that, that that were important, important al-Qaeda figures, a number of important al-Qaeda figures were at the University of Arizona in the Tucson area in the 1980s and early 1990s, okay? Um, You've you got to ask questions about that. I know it's all in hindsight, but um, the University of Arizona seemed to have been a place where there were a number of people who later became al-Qaeda figures or who may have been al-Qaeda figures even then, um, who studied in the United States. So I've got I've got a lot of questions about that. And um I'm not trying to put the University of Arizona on the spot, but I'm underscoring um I'm underscoring the the message that the student visa problem, the student visa process is and was a problem. Okay, a problem that that has to be has to be um given a lot of attention. Not to discriminate against foreign students, not to leave the talented ones out, not to not to um, uh, cut off those kind diplomatic ties that an exposure to life here in the United States creates on the other side, but to cut off to cut off the bad actors. Okay, so there's it's, it's more than an isolated incident. Um, there were a number of bad actors at um, at the University of Arizona in the 1980s um, and early 1990s. So. We do have to we do have to take a look at this, but student visa pro, uh, student visa process one problem flight schools flight schools another problem. Okay, ask yourself some common sense questions about flight schools, um, and think to yourself what might have been the common sense at the time. Is it really the case that it's only hindsight that provides us with some of this insight, or um, could an intelligent armchair citizen sitting down, thinking about who should receive flight training in the United States, have have asked some questions, asked themselves some questions about who should be admitted to flight schools, mm-hmm. or what questions were be were being asked of people who applied to flight school? Well, suppose there were. And I have no idea. Again, um, what questions may have been asked on applications to flight schools um, for some of these for some of these folks, but. If you'd been turned down for flight training in your own country and you tried to get flight training here, why should you get flight training here? Another question, why should anybody who's a foreign student get flight flight training here? Um, that might seem like a silly question, and it might also raise some hackles of folks that say, well, why would you discriminate against different types of, types of learning? This is a free country. But after what happened on 9-11, and again, this is hindsight, Okay, um, and even before 9/11, I think that if I had been sitting down, I'd been given the um, I'd been given the task of, th- of just cogitating about flight schools and who was a good idea to give flight training and who wasn't a good idea to give flight training. Um, what I would think in terms of um, turning down applications or accepting them, I think that it is possible for an intelligent person prior to um, September 11, 2000, um, to have. September 11, to have September 11, 2001, to have asked himself, um, what criteria should I use to determine admissions to flight school in the United States? What what can you do with a plane? What are planes used for? Are planes used for commercial flight? Planes can be used for military operations. Is it legitimate for uh, me to accept a student who might use his training as part of a military operation somewhere? Is there any way that I can um, that I can not predict? 
but is there any way that I can prudently assess um, whether someone's flight training might be used to some kind of nefarious purpose or, or used for a nefarious purpose? Should I accept um, Should I accept flight students who come um, from battle-worn areas of the world or, or conflicted areas of the world, um, such that I know their flight training will be used perhaps in some military operation somewhere? That's a question. I would um, not want to give flight training to a person like that. That's me. Um, I don't think it's a prudent policy to do that. I, I think that we might need some restrictions on who can get flight training in the United States. You know, Donna, how did how did we know that the other country wouldn't allow them? I mean, here's another problem. We don't have necessary access to or communications with the other countries. There's no... Fr- no communication. Well, in terms of their, yeah, in terms of their, they're being denied flight training in their own countries. Unless they admitted that, um, how are you going to know? It's tough. Uh, but do you really need? Maybe you don't need that piece of evidence. Maybe you need. Um, maybe you need to know. Okay, these are are people coming from Yemen or Yemen or or Saudi Arabia or um, some other troubled um, country in say nor in 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 Africa or in. I would just have an inherent, um, my antenna would be up if someone were applying for a flight school, if it were my flight school from those areas of the world. I would not be comfortable um, admitting them. Now, there might be all kinds of laws that govern, okay, who can be, um, who can be turned out and who can be admitted. We have a lot of federal laws um, on the books about um, how you can, how you, how you can, can treat um, student applicants. So that's a whole nother set, uh, a whole nother set of, um, a whole other set of, of things that would have to be looked at. Maybe there was no discretion to turn certain applicants down for certain purposes. Who knows? But my, I suspect that, that no one was looking for it. Yeah. It's tough. We're going to pause for our final uh, break and message here, and then we're going to get back to our, our discussion. Uh, our final law practice man at the three-quarters through our show, we give you the law practice management resources. Um, I want to tell you about, again, the ABA's law practice management section. Uh, Law practice management is everything to do with marketing, management, technology, and finance. If you're starting a law firm or running a law firm, everything that you need to know about the business of law can be found through the ABA's law practice management section. You'll receive with your membership a free subscription to Law Practice, which is the bi-monthly magazine, and uh, also Law Practice Today, the monthly webzine with current information and trends in the legal industry and to help you with the resource for the business of practicing law. Next, the Law Bulletin Publishing Company wants you to know that when you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you'll receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, offering tips and advice for lawyers going through a career transition. I am one of the columnists who is published at the Attorneys in Transition site, and I hope you stop by and leave your comments at attorneysintransition.com. Also, ProServe PR now offers secured solo practice consulting. What is this you say? Well, I'm working with recent law graduates to help launch their first shingle, if they intend certainly to do so. Uh, I've helped develop a system and practice model called secured solo practice, and this model is really the answer to new lawyers starting firms but needing backup from senior counsel, and we have a good model to make that happen. So everyone is safe and secure in their solo law practice. Give me a call at 312-505-2604 to learn more about how I can help launch secured solo practices. Also, to learn more about the solo secured practice model, you can find my column on the attorneysintransition.com blog there. Again, we want to also remind people to do share our programming in their uh 
Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter accounts. Again, the viral nature of social media helps the, us outreach to so many more people, so we do appreciate your support. And now back to Donna Adler. Um, again, Donna, we have a lot of questions here, but not a lot of solutions. But I do agree with uh, you know an increased um, you know increased scrutiny of a more roundabout process of who these people, you know, the, the patterns. I guess what we can spot is patterns, and it's like a circumstantial evidence type of a problem, and that's what helps me make the most sense of it is uh, circumstantial. Um, again, though, it just seems like an administrative – is this an administrative nightmare or isn't it? Well, I think it's more of an administrative nightmare to have a 9-11 happen. Well, <laughs> I, think that- I agree. <laughs> Certainly. Um it just uh, let's let's keep let's keep going. All right. Um just a one more point about the flight schools. There is something obvious of course. It's not just intake into the flight school, but it is the FAA that grants um grants instrument certificates, okay, um and licenses to fly the jets. And um when you look at the Hamburg contingent, for example, um Atta and Shehi um were two of them. They had they had finished up um, their flight training and earned their instrument certificates from the from the FAA in in November of 2000 and they passed their commercial pilot um, test in December 2000 and and received their licenses. So there are a number of different you know authorities who could have taken a look at them and, and asked them why what business they had um, what business they had. Um, Applying to flight school, okay. Applying for for uh, to the FAA for a certificate and and getting these licenses. It's not just one set of lenses that could have been focused on um, on questions about who was going to flight school and who was getting training. The Hamburg contingent traveled back and forth during the holiday period of, of 2000 and 2001. Three of them, you know, at least there was Jara Atta and Shehi. Um, Jar had flown through Germany to get home to Beirut. Um, a few weeks later, he returned to Florida via Germany. So there were back and forth trips. There, were, there was more than one opportunity to um, stop these guys at the border. I, I think it's important to point that out. Um, Atta traveled to Germany in early January of 2001 for a, a progress meeting with an Al Qaeda operative, um, Ramzi Benashi, and. Um, Atta had told him to report to the Al-Qaeda leadership, so they were in conversation with um, terrorist groups on these trips back and forth. Um, somehow this activity is, is undetected. They get back into the country. Atta and Shehi both encountered some difficulty um, coming back to the United States on January 10th and 18th. Neither one of them um, had a student visa, and so they had to convince the um, Customs and Border Patrol to um, the INS inspectors at that point that they should be admitted so they can continue their flight training. So these guys don't even have student visas. They have to persuade INS inspectors to let them in. These INS inspectors allow them in. Now ask yourself what, if ha- what would have happened if the INS inspectors had not allowed themselves to be persuaded because these folks did not have the right kind of visa. Um, mm. none, of the, none of these operatives had any, any trouble clearing customs. Okay, so again... Um, problematic okay people people not well people not doing their jobs in hindsight okay or at least what you can see it uh, in hindsight as um, a block that could have stood in the way of the execution of these attacks okay so uh, these two did not have student visas to go to flight school and they had to persuade INS um, um, the INS at that time to get in you know another point about about the INS um, at the time of the 9-11 attacks. 
there was a system for um, determining who was coming in, okay, clearly, but there wasn't any systematic way to track who went out or who left. One would think that a key function of an immigration and naturalization service would be uh, to have a system that would do that, but it's not until after 9-11 that the U.S. government begins to seriously um, consider the systematic options for keeping track of people who left. So I have I have a lot of questions there because it seems to me that even before 9-11, the armchair citizen contemplating an institution like the Immigration and Naturalization Service might have assumed that such a system was in place, that that was part of the everyday business of an Immigration and Naturalization Service, that, that, that such a service would have, um, would have responsibilities not only for the people who came in, but also would have some kind of intelligent way of assessing who went out, and that apparently um, was not the case. So just lots of questions, but um, it seems as though there was, was um, it seems that the ball got dropped at mm-hmm. several different points um, when it shouldn't have. I don't know whether you have any thoughts about um, thoughts about that, tracking out. Again, I, I just, I think these are all good things. It's just a matter of who's going to do them. How do you standardize, I, you know, when, I could just see, you know, for every potential solution, I can see holes in it. So Well, there are always holes. You have to figure, it, yes, out, you have it, to figure out your way around them. Right, and it just seems like if if they learn, I'm trying to think that if I were the terrorist, I would be trying to think steps ahead, and I would try to present in a way that didn't uh, trigger any alarms or, or, or do anything. Um, you know, the flight school thing is the one thing that just uh, sticks uh, out as, as being so kind of odd, you know, why, you know, I know that we're a, a great place for aviation, but it just seems odd that you would come here for something like flight school for medicine. I, it makes sense, but um, I, I do you think that our, our current Homeland Security is the appropriate uh, avenue to deal with this, this special inquiry, or do you think that, that we should have another a type of a agency who deals. No, we don't need any more agencies. <laughs> or like a subpart, maybe. We don't or need like any a... more federal agencies. I would say that, that the, um, and, and I have a whole lot to say, I think, um, about the about the Homeland Security Act itself, and whether that and whether that was whether that was even a good idea. I think that we don't need any more agencies. What we need are agencies doing things differently. The ones we've got. Um, we need we need the State Department um, asking incisive questions, and we need um, what is now the Department of Homeland Security and U- United States Citizenship and Immigration Services asking um, incisive questions. And we need to train people to ask the right kinds of questions. I think I've said uh, suggested on, on earlier shows that if I really wanted to find out um, who is likely to be a risk for terrorism in the United States, I wouldn't be asking straightforward questions like, um, have you come to commit acts of sabotage? <laughs> I would be looking I would be looking much more deeply beneath the service service about where um where money flows into and out of an individual's life, et cetera, et cetera. I mean it could become um it could become very invasive questioning for someone applying um, applying for a visa or trying to stay here, mm-hmm. either applying for a visa through the, the State Department or trying to stay here. But again, um, it's a privilege to stay 
when you're not a citizen, it's a, it's a privilege to come and visit. You don't want to intimidate people um, so much or scare them, um, you know, people coming in. We want reciprocity of in, – in free nations, we, we, um, we, we hope to promote, okay, the free passage of commerce, the free passage of persons back and forth. We do have to, um, we do have to protect our safety in a complex world, but to be prudent with respect to people coming in, it is, in the end of the game, it's a privilege and not a right to be here. And if you want to stay here, then then part of that privilege is to be is to be willing to subject yourself to what may be um, a great deal of scrutiny. Um, I don't I don't believe in body cavity searches. Okay, I don't like what we're doing at our airports. But I'm thinking in terms of questioning and in terms of revealing details about one's life and and our ability to figure out who someone really is. Um, I think that there should be a willingness. Uh, on the part of people who want to come here, especially permanently, or to study here and, and utilize our universities, there should be willingness to um, be subjected to some scrutiny before um, before they're given a visa to, to stay. It's a privilege. It's not a right. So, again, I agree that it's a privilege, not a right, and we should have increased scrutiny. Hi, just trying to see what the game plan would look like. Okay, well, um, maybe we'll maybe we'll have some more incisive suggestions when we look at at some of the changes that have occurred later down the line in the um, in um, in USCIS, USCIS, which didn't exist at the time of um, the terrorist attacks um, on 9/11. We had the INS then. Um, that that service has been um, has been you know disbanded and it's been its functions taken over um, by new agencies created since then. So. We can take a look at that, see what's happened, and take a look at, 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 at specific measures. But right now, we're focusing on uh, we're focusing on 9/11 and what wasn't happening at that point. Right. And it's apparent that there was a problem. In, it's apparent to me that there was a problem in the student visa issuance pro- process. Okay, so that it should not be the case that there were a number of people who later became important in Al Qaeda who um, found the University of Arizona a convenient place to congregate. That should not be the case. And whatever we need to do to um, prevent that becoming the case at any one of our universities, we need to do. I, I don't mean draconian measures. I mean I'm a person very much um, who likes to tread the middle line. I don't um, think that we need extremes on the very left or on the very right. That's why we need dialogue. We need to come to intelligent solutions. Right. And the, um, the trick as we go forward is to figure out um, what does the job without so intimidating, okay, talented people who want to come here, that we turn them off to the whole idea of wanting to come. Right, right. That's a challenge. So, and, and we continue to explore uh, these challenges and the events and the laws in our series with 9-11. And I want to thank you, Donna, for your time this morning and being on our program again. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. We'd also like to thank our commercial sponsors and guests. We'd also like to uh, thank all of our listeners who tune in to Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe Public Relations. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain you and bring you and the legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news that you can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collaboration. Intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and we thank you for your time.